currently. The temperature is 29 degrees Celsius. The relative, relative humidity, 89%. That's all the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Philip Wong. Today, we're talking about child abuse in Hong Kong after a father was sentenced to five years and four months behind bars for sexually assaulting his own daughter for years, starting when she was just five years old. The victim, now 17, had told her mother about the assaults, but nothing was done until she emailed her teacher about the increasingly serious abuse. Unfortunately, she's not alone. The government says it handled 1,367 cases of child abuse in 2021, up 45% from the previous year. So, is the problem getting worse? What more can be done to protect children? Is a 64-month sentence enough of a deterrent? After 9.45, we'll speak to a top scorer in this year's university entrance exam. And let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233 now, to kick off our discussion this morning, we have uh, on the line Pooja Kapai, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Law. She's also the Vice Chair of the Hong Kong Committee on Children's Rights. And uh, we also have uh, Priscilla Lowe, a leading children's rights advocate and a former member of the Commission on Children. Good morning, Professor Kapai. Good morning, Janice, and good morning, Priscilla. Good morning. And uh, good morning, Ms. Lowe. Good morning. Thanks Good for, morning to you all. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, uh, Professor Kapai, uh, what do you think of the 64-month sentence in this uh, latest case? Is it ad- adequate? I always tend to think that in such egregious cases of um, sexual abuse against young children, it is inadequate, especially where there are uh, very strong considerations placed in respect of kind of the need to maintain family unity. Um, and to sort of um, resume relations within the family context. I think that there is still in Hong Kong a tendency to prioritize this over and above the uh, best interests of the child. Um, So in my view, I I mean, obviously it it depends on a case-by-case basis, but I really do think the first and foremost question has to be what is necessary for the recovery of the child in question um, and whether sort of this goal of, uh, you know, getting the family back together um, should be at all a consideration in respect of sentencing. And I think the sentencing has to reflect the gravity of the offenses. And in this respect, I, I certainly think it's inadequate. Uh, Professor Kapai, you mentioned about providing support to the child, to the victim. And I'm just mm-hmm. thinking, you know, whether or not this sentencing is leading or not. I'm just thinking about what happens afterwards when the, when the perpetrator is released. Shouldn't there be something where, you know, we don't allow the perpetrator to see the victim again? Do you think we should, you know, do something like that? I think it comes down to rehabilitation and recovery, both for the child and for the perpetrator. And as I said, I think that these things are extremely traumatic for the children concerned. And it is a different um, uh, process for everybody. Uh, Everyone needs their own time and their own process to sort of work through, and they need a tremendous amount of support. We are already short on support in Hong Kong. Um, and, and, And I think it has to be up to the individual child when they're of age and have the maturity to be able to assess whether this is something that is in their interest and whether they want to maintain contact with the perpetrator. It cannot be the other way around. There's no such thing as parental right Mm. to access a child whom you have um, caused harm to. Right. Uh, Let's go to uh, Ms. Lowe. Ms. Lowe, good morning. 
Good morning. So, so just now, uh, Professor Kapai, she, she, she talked about rehabilitation and recovery. And uh, this case we're talking about, the abuse started when the child was uh, just five years old. Um, what kind of impact or trauma will this cause? Uh, there are a tremendous impact on the child through the way. Um, and some would assume by removing the perpetrator, the child will be okay. Um, very often when we really trace the families and children, we found that it's not the case. So I, I think Puja is really right in saying that we have to be very careful about the follow-up action, treatment, um, management, and rehabilitation. And that will always be a very careful and sometimes very long process. So we found victims, first of all, having to hold on to those threats and um, abuse physically, sexually, psychologically for a long, long time before sharing, before disclosing the kind of pain and trauma to others. Um, so the period that they've been holding on uh, is hurting. If you look at them sometimes superficially, they seem to be all right. But all of those stresses and strains and pain are deep inside a person. That is the most harming part. And the longer it stayed, the longer it hurts and more difficult to heal. So I, I think the entire process, I hope to see the government and non-government and also families place a lot of emphasis in helping to identify and in helping to work with the children uh, so that they will come out of those kind of trauma. And for the perpetrator, I think as Pooja said, it's really of uh, essential to also provide counseling. So at a, a, a certain stage, we have been urging for the correctional services and, and, and so on and so forth to um, require the perpetrators to receive treatment, to accept therapies or also um, for, for having those, to really help them to see the trauma that they've created or contributed on children so that they can make the decision themselves not to do it again. So whether you will say to allow the child or children to be returned to the family or the perpetrator, I think it's a very, very important decision. It would be, I personally think, it would be undesirable to just uh, uh, set a, a red line saying that you'll never be able to do that. that uh, we need to give a chance to those who violated um, the rights of children, but we also trace evidence that the sizable number have recovered and have stopped doing such acts. I think those evidence are important so that the judgment and the decision that um, professionals and family made are based on evidence, based on uh, the real cases, instead of just feeling that we should never let them or let certain people to, to get in, in touch with children. Thank you, Ms. Loy. Uh, I, I agree with everything that you said. Um, for the victim, especially for this particular victim, it started when she was five years old all the way to 17. So that's 12 years of traumatic experience. And I cannot imagine you know, what she's going through. And you mentioned about support and treatment and rehabilitation for the victim. You know, what kind of uh, support will, will, should the victim be getting? Um. There are different approaches, particularly I think overseas they place emphasis 
on those. And I hope to see that in Hong Kong. I should say in Hong Kong, I think our professionals have also tried out many approaches. So we need to make those known to the community and make better improvement to see whether those approaches are effective. Yeah, I look forward to to witnessing those as well. Um, the, the one of which is that um, the, we need to. Uh, I, I think one difficult part is let the um, victims share their genuine uh, feelings and and their genuine experience of um, encountering such traumatic experience with the abuser, with the perpetrator. That's a very difficult part and needs to be made very carefully. So the first part must be focusing on working with the perpetrator alone, yeah, making him understand and making him talk. That sometimes is a difficult part because he, very often there's a defensive kind of mechanism coming out. So he or she may have all kinds of excuses. But overcoming those would also be their own problems, uh, their, their own experience uh, as a child or in the past. Those needs to be uh, confronted, needs to be appreciated uh, in order to prevent other, say, people from, from stepping the, the same uh, trap or journey. So I, I think it's a, it's a really very lengthy process. All right. And Professor Kapai, um the legislation for uh, the mandatory reporting of serious child abuse uh, was gazetted in June in Hong Kong, and uh, it will be implemented in 18 months' time. Um, do you think the mechanism will be able to identify cases like the one we're talking about in future? I think that it's a very necessary first step uh, in the process, especially in a context uh, like Hong Kong, where we place a lot of emphasis on um, uh, ensuring that family matters are kept private and that we, we don't air them out publicly. We don't often access help when it's necessary in, in these types of situations. So I think it's a necessary first step. However, I think apart from legislation, there is a very strong need for um, public education and an emphasis on professional and ethical responsibility of members in the community who come into contact with children or have the opportunity to observe these instances. So, for example, in this particular case, the mother was approached, but she did not uh, contextualize the acts as harmful and instead made up an explanation, uh, you know, to deter the child from talking about this further. And I think that that's extremely damaging. And so we really do have to think actively about how do we equip people who often come into contact with children, um, and even those who do not, just as a community, how do we pre uh, prepare them to understand that this is a very serious responsibility and the legislation is very important in helping us take a step towards prevention of these types of um, cases or any cases of child, uh, child abuse. Right. And Ms. Lowy, like uh, what Professor Kapai was just saying, um, in this case, the victim did try to tell her mother about uh, what her father was doing to her, but uh, it, it didn't work. The mother said it was uh, just uh, a way that her, her father was showing his love for her. Um, so, so how can you tell when there is something wrong? I mean, it, it can just start with a, a pat on the behind. Absolutely. I think the, um, the, the empowering exercise must be strengthened. And, and uh, while advocates have all along been urging from uh, the review of legislation, the legal protection for children, 
are based on the UN Convention's stipulation to, to make the entire protection um, with a high standard, with an international standard. Uh, that, that have always been an advocate's uh, concern. But a, a legalistic or purely a legal approach uh, is it, only helping to set baseline and maybe helping to change behavior. But what more important is the entire community empowerment. And we look forward to the entire community through our law and education, religion and so on, to ensure our community is really a caring and respectable one. And one, as Pooja mentioned, we, we are really honoring the notion of the best interests of children notion. But very often, I think that remains as rhetorical, the children's best interests, because there are too many things, our finance, our economics, our status, and so on and so forth, a lot of things overcoming, well, overwhelming. Yeah, in the hands of the government, policy, uh, uh, budget, and so on and so forth. And children very often followed uh, uh, as the last group or, or thinking that they are already doing very well. So I really hope to see the community empowerment part. If you ask about the educators, uh, the policymakers need to make those really solid and clear and not just as a poster or some a piecemeal kind of program, but the entire community needs to see the responsibility and the possible role to play before they can learn to see what are we talking about, sexual abuse, and, and how, how can we allow our children, our own children and that of others, in our classes in the society to be harmed physically, sexually and socially for, for such a long period of time. And I observed some cases that the, um, the supermarket colleagues, the ladies, observed these traumatic signs before their parents or carers, who were always there, but their hands were always full. And there are other uh, considerations, fears, that they, they refused to confront the problem, now, even mm -hmm. if they observed certain abuse of their children. So I think we have to be to improve our education, formal education for children and for trainers, for teachers and for professionals, as well as support. Um, um, many, many um, such valid cases pop up in our community. I think um, we, we have to tactfully make them know so that we will be more ready to help children uh, in a very early stage before it deteriorated into a traumatic or tragic case situation. Ms. Loy, so you mentioned about providing them with more support in terms of from, from the teachers and schools. So really schools should you know, spend a little bit more time in, in terms of providing support to the teachers as to how to be aware um, of such cases. Um, and also, I guess we, it, it takes a lot of courage for these victims to actually speak up as well. So how important is it to educate them, to let them know that it's okay to inform, you know, the, the people that they trust? Yes, of course, to start with, the school's policy guidelines framework needs to be strengthened and put into practice. But in actual life, I think it's more important for, for uh, educators, for teachers to build up the kind of caring relationship 
uh, between them and the students. And very often, I think the teachers' hands are full. And because of the administrative chores, they have a lot of things in mind and in hand. And so because of those that preoccupied their energy and their time and their concern and their focus, and not because they are not caring or, or they don't can consider about the welfare of the children, but because of those that, that have caught their attention more and they're more concerned. And their energies and, then, uh, and their time have been preoccupied. So I think all of those needs to be confronted and, and faced seriously for the teachers to see that what is more important, what is the best interest of children in front of me that I need to see. So if we keep our eyes open and our ears open and, and we talk to the children and listen to them, then maybe we'll be more able to pick up more of what they have uh, in, their, in their kind of um, daily life and, and their actual uh, uh, status uh, in the school. And Professor Kapai, I just want to go back to the sentencing part. You mentioned it was a bit lenient. And, you know, in terms of the, the law, I want to get a better understanding of why the judge decided on such um, a sentence. You know, can you explain a little bit about, you know, the judge's thinking in, in, in terms of determining the sentence? Sure, but if I may just weigh in on a couple of the questions that you've uh, posed, and uh, you know, uh, and um, Priscilla's had a chance to answer. I think it's really important to draw out a couple of things. The first is that uh, you know, you mentioned should teachers have uh, a little bit more of a role to play in mm -hmm. educating children? I think they should have a much greater role to play in educating children about what is a healthy body touch mm -hmm. and what is your own sort of. Uh, body positivity and body image um, and that it is you know your own kind of decision as to whether you choose to engage in any form of contact I think these sorts of um, self-respecting principles must be emphasized over and above I think the ideologies that girls in Hong Kong are often taught or um, presume based on the the way that they're exposed to ideas they think that we are there to please other people we should be presentable people should look at us and feel as though you know we're we're beautiful and all of these things, I think, feed into how a victim will respond if she's touched inappropriately. And then the second aspect is also, you know, for the mother. Um, the emphasis, obviously, I think, in the mother's mind was, how do I make this go away because this could tear things apart if I, you know, escalate this. And that obviously should not be the primary concern, although we can all understand where that comes from. So I think there has to be a very strong educational component um, for both uh, teachers and all professionals, including social workers. I've come across cases where social workers have tried to dissipate the situation by understanding and acknowledging, oh, it's a very sensitive family matter, so I'll let you handle it. But you're basically putting the child in the hands of, you know, the perpetrator or those who want to maintain the status quo and that's a very dangerous situation so we have to give people the skills to understand that there are certain non-negotiables and this is one of them we cannot prioritize family um, sort of sanctity over and above the well-being of a child who's basically stuck in a uh, cycle and as Priscilla said if you don't address these uh, touches early they then do tend to escalate as in, as is the pattern in many of these cases and the victims then after they reach out because it's so difficult for them to reach out the first time if they've been turned away or turned down or told that you're making a big deal then they are less likely or to take much longer to come back the second time around for help so it's part of our responses so apart from the legislation 
we need to make sure that our communities are ready and prepared to respond meaningfully and effectively the very first time that a child raises an alarm. Uh, so, so that's what we have to get to apart from just the law. Coming back to your question on the sentencing, the judge, I mean, I haven't read the judgment as yet, so I can't go too deep into what the judge's thinking was, but my sense of it uh, essentially is that the, uh, because the father uh, pleaded guilty and uh, that meant that the, uh, the daughter was not required to give extensive testimony as to each instance of assault, uh, the judge applied uh, sort of the regular starting point for an offense like this and then gave the discount that you do give for a guilty plea. Um, and I think that uh, the judge also took into account the fact that this was a family context. And in a study that I've done previously, I've looked at a series of such cases involving sexual assault by uh, perpetrators who are known to the victims, especially where there are younger victims in the family context. I've looked at incest cases and uh, other such cases. And I've found that the tendency tends to be for the judge to, to err on the side of uh, uh, leniency. And I, I, I wonder if that is uh, the right approach. I can very much understand where that comes from, but I think that we, we do need to send a stronger signal. Um, but as Priscilla said again, I don't think it just comes down to what the sentence is. Obviously, the sentence has to reflect the gravity um, of the offense, but at the same time, there must be mandatory uh, rehabilitation programs that the perpetrator is guided towards. There has to be an assessment and evaluation at the front end and the back end when the perpetrator emerges from such programs. Um, and it has to be much more rigorous than what we have now. So I would say sentencing is just one part of it, but it does need to be upped in order to send a very strong signal that we take this extremely seriously. Because this will have a lifelong consequences on the ability of this child to form healthy relationships. Research shows that victims of um, sexual abuse tend to end up in relationships where they continue to be abused because they're unable to break free of the cycle of um, feeling like they owe the perpetrator something. Um, so there's a psychological uh, uh, traumatic effect as well. So there are many, many factors to consider and a lot of work that has to be done before a person can really genuinely recover without being triggered again in the context of other relationships too. Thank you for that. Um, you talked about just, just before about, you know, teachers should be doing more, should talk, talk about, should teach children about, you know, um, personal, social, emotional development. And that is extremely important. And this might be a little bit off topic, but in Hong Kong, I, I guess a lot of the teachers are pressurized to focus on their academic achievements, which is why I think that's why that area is, is lacking. But another important area I feel is actually in terms of educating the teachers, you know, the social workers, also the parents themselves as well. And Ms. Loy, how important is that in terms of educating the parents? I think it's also really very important, <laughs> yeah. helping the parents. Because we heard the, the outcry of parents very often. And if you look at the hotline data and statistics, some of the parents are actually calling in. They themselves are the ones who report. Uh, some reported their spouse or family members, and some even reported the um, abusive acts of themselves. So they are saying that we need help. Yeah, we want, we want to uh, do better. But there is a large sector of parents who would like to do better. But then we have to look carefully and seriously into why they are not doing better or why they are actually the ones contributing 
uh, to different ways and abusing their children. So all along, I think advocates, including myself, have been asking or urging for effective and evidence-based program for parenting. And there has been one introduced years back, and that is a healthy start program. That means start at the very beginning, helping the families to build up a safe environment, a safe practice, and safe lifestyle. Not all right, safe, all right, Miss Lowe. All right, Miss Lowe. We okay. have to take a we have to take a short uh, news break, and maybe you can tell us more about this a healthy parenting program after the news in around uh, two minutes' time. Thanks again to Pooja Kapai, associate professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Law. She's also the vice chair of the Hong Kong Committee on Children's Rights. Now, if you want to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Three. Email us at backchat at rthk or give us a call on 233-88266. And here's a quick look at the weather. A few showers and isolated thunderstorms in the morning. Sunny intervals later with highs of around 32 degrees. Winds moderate southeasterlies. And uh, right now it's 29 degrees. Relative humidity, 84%. It's now 9.30 with a news summary. Here's Barry O'Rourke. The CEO of Hong Kong China Rugby says the Hong Kong Sevens will remain as the biggest event of the World Rugby Sevens series. This is despite World Rugby slimming down the tournament, which will be called now the SVNS, spelt SVNS, and feature only the top 12 men's and women's teams. It kicks off in Dubai in December and reaches Hong Kong in April. Robbie McRobbie says the changes are designed to ensure quality and also contain costs. Wheat prices have risen sharply after Russia said it would start treating ships heading for Ukrainian ports as potential military targets. Earlier this week, Moscow pulled out of a deal that had guaranteed safe passage for vessels carrying grain. And the New Zealand Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, says the opening match of the Women's Football World Cup will go ahead as planned later today, despite a shooting in Auckland in which the gunman and two members of the public died. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. In the past year, our current term government team have been result-oriented. We have led Hong Kong to break new ground and open a new chapter. We strive to enhance governance, work pragmatically and unite different sectors, enabling Hong Kong to ride out the pandemic, resume normalcy and shine again on the international stage. We implement patriots administering Hong Kong, enhance interactions between the executive and the legislature, improve district administration and jointly maintain social harmony and stability. We pursue economic growth, find new land and create strong impetus for development. We tell the world good stories of Hong Kong and spare no effort in attracting enterprises and talent. We care about livelihoods and earnestly address issues like housing, environment and transportation. We nurture our youth. Hong Kong will proactively integrate into national development, consolidate its position as an international city and make steady strides towards a brighter future. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Philip Wong and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Priscilla Loy, a leading children's rights advocate and a former member of the Commission on Children. Uh, Ms. Loy, welcome back. Thank you. Um, before Thank the you. news, before the news, we're talking about how we can uh, better educate parents, maybe to um, spot signs of uh, child abuse. Um, and you were talking about a healthy parenting program. Can you can you uh, continue telling us a bit more about that program? Yes, um, the the program has started decades ago. 
um, in all over the world, in many parts, um, have considered that as evidence, uh, the, the best approach and evidence-based approach in helping families um, to uh, acquire a, a positive and non-abusive kind of approach towards uh, their children and families. And it started uh, while the families are having their firstborn, newborn children. So that leads to the, uh, to a very hopeful and important start. And we have brought those uh, projects back here in Hong Kong. And in fact, the government have um, accepted to a certain extent a program like that. So um, for, for a decade or so, the government has been rendering a comprehensive child development service yeah, for four different types of families in Hong Kong. And that particular program, I've urged for a review to see whether um, it, it needs to be improved. In fact, we suggest to be improved because as we see in other countries, there are home visitation, intensive home visitation by professionals, by carers to support those who are in a very important stage of wanting to know how and wanting to do better. So I think to start with, if we're talking about effective parenting, uh, safe and healthy and non-abusive, non-violent parenting, we have to start early. We have to invest in it. And I think in Hong Kong, I would cry out loud for programs as such to be improved. And particularly when we see that the, um, the, the birth rate, as quoted in policy, uh, the uh, population policy, it's decreasing. Uh, at this stage, um, we need to strengthen those who have decided to have children and to help and guide and groom them in a positive way, leading to a really better Hong Kong, which is non-punitive, not always using uh, punishment as one way out. That's an important thing. Right. And another um, very important and effective kind of parenting program, actually, I think the Hong Kong government has brought in for, uh, from, say, Australia. It's a three-piece triple piece positive parenting program and have actually started for a few years by training the um, uh, professional social workers and um, healthcare uh, workers in Hong Kong. So I'm very interested to see how successful a pro program as such have been because there have been resources, money, manpower devoted. So what I'm saying is that meaningful, effective programs are here in Hong Kong because we borrow from others' experience and we have developed our own. Many NGOs have tried very hard for parenting programs, but because of the limitation of resources and manpower, they weren't able to do more. And I think because it needs not only one agency or one group of parents, but needs to be more extensive and more intensive in order to reduce the, the, the kind of trauma cases and the risk and harm in our society. I think we have to, at this stage, particularly when our government is saying that we will need to write an, a good Hong Kong story. So let our families, let our parents and children join in, be able to help in a more um, positive and constructive way in writing the story. Right. We have always claimed that our children are our hope for the future. Future. So I think we need to start now. It is now that we need to help uh, the newborn 
um, the children in primary schools and our adolescents through the way that they have a role to contribute. All right, Ms. Loy, I have an email here from uh, listener Mike, and uh, he said he's talking about uh, what uh, you were talking about, what uh, Professor Kapai was talking about before the news about uh, how uh, perpetrators uh, should uh, be provided with counseling, treatment, and therapy, and also what uh, uh, Professor Kapai says uh, it should be mandatory uh, for perpetrators to uh, go through some sort of uh, rehabilitation program. And uh, in this email, Mike says uh, it's uh, 1,000% wrong. And individual that can sexually uh, abuse his five-year-old daughter and continue to abuse her for decades is uh, non-redeemable. His uh, mind is so distorted, he will never be safe with children, and it would be completely irresponsible for a society to think so. And uh, that uh, message is from Mike. Uh, Priscilla, what do you think of uh, views like that? Well, I think there are two extreme views. I, I have heard and I have received through the years, and one of which is Mike's view. And the other extreme is that if we do not provide a chance for people to rehabilitate and live a new life, it is inhuman. I've received those two. They are from, from, the, um, <laughs> from the community. But we need to confront those very squarely, yeah, very carefully. I think Mike is right into saying, in saying that first uh, the um, that he, he pointed out the danger uh, for not being able to heal uh, b- because of some kind of harm or reasons done. I think we need to study more and understand more. And that's why I mentioned that we need to be evidence-based. And the correctional services, um, in response to advocates uh, call, calling out for, for the, um, the mandatory treatment, has actually conducted treatment for perpetrators or sexual abuse perpetrators being sentenced and jailed for a long time. So I think they need to speak up. They need to look at the data and statistics to tell, to inform the community and perhaps inform Mike and those who believe that they can never be changed to see whether their lives changed. And I personally observe some lives changed. Uh, the, uh, or Mike will be talking about those most serious uh, and, and really maybe more difficult for them to control themselves or others to help. There, there are people uh, cite, cited as Mike, but there are also other ones yeah, through the continuum. We saw that they have, they have ventured into something undesirable or very dangerous and, and uh, risky for their children and themselves. And some, uh, after all these things, they are realizing of ways of helping themselves or stopping themselves from doing so and rehabilitated from it. So we have to look at the different cases, different scenarios, rather than say across the board, we think that nobody uh, should be able to do that. Ms. Loy, we, we've talked a lot about child abuse in, in respect to this particular serious case. And I just want to move on to child abuse in general, because uh, according to studies from the Social Welfare Department, we've seen a 45% increase from 2020 to 2021. And in 2021, there were 1,367 such child abuse cases. Is that increase to do with COVID and the fact that you know parents are at home with their children more? Uh, thank you for raising this concern. We, we need to talk more about um, confronting child sexual abuse 
um, we, we still have a, a, a section about online risk, which is very dangerous. But it is so right to not only focus on one aspect, but look at more. Uh, and, and I do think that the COVID period has added a lot of stresses and strains on children and families and a lot of challenges. And it's a very tough period. And there are changes in terms of, say, if we look at family income for some who lost their job and others who got pay cut. And there are still others who lost their breadwinners. So the entire family pattern, family roles and parenting have changed considerably within a short period of time. And, and also in conjunction, there's more time in contact with children who, who were confined at home. And many children who are at that very young age, even say babies, toddlers, uh, children, and a lot of um, strains and stresses on adolescents, because those are the periods for their physical, uh, psychological, social development. And yet they were deprived of adequate opportunities, of activities, of guidance and attentions. So I think all those have come into conflict of each other. And due to the school closure, a lot of those struggles at home or abuse, physical abuse in particular, because if you are emotionally stressful to an extent or depressive to an extent of exploding, then you, you take out to whatever uh, next to you, yeah, particularly our children and young persons and vulnerable members in our family. So, so cases like that increase. It, it, it's... It's something we, we do not want to see, and we, we want to bring help into the family. But because of the lockdown, nobody is in contact with the children and families that easily. So cases such as those remained on their own and, and deteriorated in sometimes an uncontrollable or, or really in a tragic situation. And, and when the community now is gradually opening, so all these cases are gradually coming out. And coming out has an advantage. That is why the mandatory reporting essence has been put forth, uh, the system has been put forth to help uh, the professionals, uh, social education uh, and medical and so on, to be aware of early prevention, the importance of early prevention. All right, Ms. Lowe, I mean, earlier on in the program, we, we talked about uh, the need to uh, uh, the need for more public education, the need uh, to educate uh, parents more. Um, so, when it comes to, um, like, for example, the case we were talking about, uh, where the, uh, the the victim actually told the mother that uh, um, she felt like something was wrong with her, the way her father was showing her um, his love. Um, how do parents, I mean, how, how can parents tell? I mean, when is a, a pat on the behind not appropriate? I mean, for, for a two-year-old, it's okay. When, 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 does, when do we draw the line? You see, in, in the 90s, see, this child abuse problem is, is not a new problem. It has been there for a very long time. Of course, there have been new challenges, like the online concerns and the risk and the crime and so on. Through the years, there have been community education and also formal education. But all of these needs to be improved um, and updated so that the, the current situation and the past constraints, the, the difficulties would need to be put into focus. And, and it's a really brand new 
a system and education that needs to be put in front of us. And the, the formal ones, as mentioned by Apuja, is so important because it's from the child's childhood. We're educating them to see the world, which is a beautiful world, which is a less undesirable world, so that they are themselves, to a certain extent, they are aware. And not only the children themselves, the parent education in the schools, with the schools, and informal ones with the NGOs in the community needs to be strengthened. But the thing is, you need to do more because some of the parents' hands are full. They, they have to, they themselves are the breadwinners. So both parents are working. And now we are urging the parents to have more children because the, the birth rate is lowering. We need to have a package of change and support so that they are willing to do so. The, the studies recently indicated the young people do not want to do it because they think that in the community, the, um, the, uh, the, the supportive package, the potent system itself is not there. So I think really we need to devote time yeah, into this to strengthen the supportive the, the, uh, uh, services um, uh, and systems so that the young couples are willing to venture into having their own children and using a non-abusive, a non-violent, not always punitive approach on children. And there are more effective approaches that we need to introduce and we need to demonstrate to the community, to the parents to see that those are working if you are willing to join and try. Right, Ms. Lowe, but what, what about uh, for, for parents who are not really um, familiar with this issue, when do they know uh, that it's uh, not appropriate to uh, uh, pat a, a child on, on the behind? I mean, yeah, how can they tell? I mean, it's okay for a two-year-old two child? Is it okay for a four-year-old or five-year-old or six-year-old? How do they know? Uh, so that's why it's parent and community education. And, and also... I think I've quoted cases of the super, uh, uh, superstore the, um, workers. They have helped to identify. They may not have received, say, the long period of academic kind of excellence or education, but I think they are common sense that we need to help and build in our community, our parents and so on. That's why I, I, I am reiterating the importance of the um, maternity and health care services of, uh, and government and public them, so that they will help to, the, gov uh, the parents to be more aware, to, uh, to acquire more common sense in determining what you mentioned earlier on. And if there is one thing we need to remind our parents and community, that help is around. And if you are uncertain, so your children have been raising the concern. If you are uncertain, if you hear this on one, once and again, call somebody, ask somebody, uh, seek help from somebody. And then if we are that somebody, be prepared to help. And I heard many parents who wanted to seek help were frustrated because they said that the hotlines are so busy. They weren't able to get somebody to answer their call. So they, give, they have given up 
and they have given up on what their children have asked them. All right, so, so Ms. Lou, uh, we're, unfortunately we're out of time. We have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Priscilla Lowe, a leading children's rights advocate and a former member of the Commission on Children. It's now 9.48 and in a moment we'll speak to a top scorer in this year's DSE University entrance exam. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Teen, Roundtable Legislator. I want to congratulate RTHK on its uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RTHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual use. So I congratulate them and I believe that they will continue to do the same. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Four students have achieved top marks in this year's DSE University entrance exams, receiving perfect scores of a five-star star in each of the four core subjects and three electives. Three of the students even scored perfect marks in an additional maths module, making them super top scorers. And one of them, Icy Koo, is now on the line. Good morning, Icy. Good morning. Congratulations and uh, thanks Thank for joining you. us on the program. So, first of all, how did you celebrate yesterday after getting your uh, perfect scores? Um, I just went to celebrate with all my friends because we all get pretty good grades. And I also celebrated with my families and we have the dinner together. So, were you surprised by your DSE results or was it uh, within your expectations? Um, I was really surprised because when we heard there are only four top scorers in Hong Kong the day before the actual release of DSE, then I was like, uh, I know that people in my class are actually all very good and ha- all having great potential in achieving this. So I, uh, I was like, like thinking whether I have the chance, I still have the chance of getting this kind of honor. So I see. How many interviews have you done since yesterday? <laughs> there are like quite a few of them. You're a very busy person now. And of course, congratulations to you. It's an amazing achievement. Um, not many people can do that. And, and, and in fact, you're only one of the four, well, not just four, one of the three out of 50,000 students who are considered as the super top scorer. So that includes the additional five-star star in the maths extended M1, M2 exam. How do you feel about that? Um, I'm I'm really surprised, of course, and I'm also really happy because I I think I can actually give back to the people who have supported me throughout the whole journey, like including my friends who are like we are all like fighting together and tackling DSE, and also my parents who have give, given me a lot of mental support during the exam and during the COVID pandemic and where I need to study all the time, and also to my thank like I give back to my probably my teachers as well because they help me throughout my senior and junior school life all the time no matter it's uh, to shape me as a person or to shape my academic performance. And uh, like Philip just mentioned it's an amazing achievement. Can you share with us how you uh, prepared for your exams? Um, Did you study for hours every day? Um, yeah, I, of course. I, I believe that everyone who's taking DSE stream are actually studying really hard because it's there are a lot. The syllabus is pretty long, so we, and there are a lot of subjects. So that's why I also did study for a pretty long time every day. Like say I do eight 
to 10 hours per day during the study leave period. But I also spend some time on relaxing myself. For example, like I do singing and I, I also go out to watch debate competitions during my study leave period. Now, you mentioned about uh, support, you know, from friends, yeah. families, I guess even schools. How important is that? Because I think, I mean, I've done exams before and when I was doing <laughs> yeah. public exams, it was extremely stressful. Yeah, I think especially peer support because everyone is going through the same thing together. So it's kind of it's some kind of communal suffering for all of us. So I guess giving each other support and encouraging words are actually really helpful for us to like survive this period, which we are actually all staying home and not going outside, but we can still do calls or FaceTimes together so we can like study together and ask each other questions, especially because um, sometimes these kind of higher level um, like curriculum and uh, exams are actually, uh, it's hard to find teachers to ask, especially when you're not at school. And even you're like tutorial teachers may not be free all the time so it's good to, for you to ask your friends for that and they can always give you immediate response which is really good and really helpful and uh, and uh, i see what do you think of the uh, overall uh, dse results this year i mean uh, of course uh, there are four top scorers which is uh, wonderful news but that's uh, significantly uh, fewer than the 11 from last year what do you think happened there um, I think, as mentioned by another top scorer, like Kerry, he told us, uh, like, the numbers of top scorers is actually usually by random, so there is a probability that it's going to be a pretty a small number like this year. But still, I guess the main reason is because um, the most of the potential top scorers is actually... Um, like that meet the cutoff of one or two single subjects it's, it's probably just missing by a little bit but then it can be enough to pull them down to a, a little bit down like lower grades but actually it's already very good and we can see that the numbers of over not the top like not the perfect score but then for the other like like one with seven five stars five double star or six five double stars the number of people are actually pretty much the same so i guess it's just one or two subjects uh, and what about uh, the, the COVID pandemic? How big of an impact do you think it had on the uh, the uh, DSE results? Um, to be honest, for uh, for me, I because I didn't actually get COVID during the exams or during the study leave period. So for me, it's not a big issue. But in general, for Hong Kong society, of course, there may be some people who are really, really unfortunate and get COVID during the most like important period and actually miss out, miss out some of the exams even. So that's why I guess the result may be a little bit like worse than they expected. But in general, because um, like in our senior years, every year they're actually having COVID pandemic. But then uh, we're all having different ways to tackle it. For example, we have online meetings for lessons. And it's actually, uh, it may sound that the efficiencies or the teaching qualities will be lower, but actually we have more time to rest. So we are having better mental health as well. And we have more, uh, more times at home to prepare for exams on our own. So it may be also a good thing for some of the people. Now, moving forward, I guess it's safe to say that you have a lot of options to choose now. You know, what are your plans? Are you planning to go overseas, you know, experience something different, or are you planning to stay in Hong Kong? I'm going to stay, stay in Hong Kong, and I didn't apply for any overseas university. And I'm going to stay in Hong Kong for medicines, like taking medicines in either of the universities who provide this, this major. And um, I'm... Because I want to like serve our own community, as I mentioned, and I believe that using my own like knowledge and my abilities 
I've like gained in the universe and gained in university later on, and also the secondary school life can actually help to help me to gain a lot of sense of achievement of helping the others. Well, thank you for choosing uh, medicine because now in Hong Kong, um, if you don't know, there's a shortage of uh, doctors right now. So thank you for choosing medicine. Um, It takes. uh, Was it because of you know your decision to get into medicine that motivated you to study you know extra hard and work well, uh, work hard as well? Yeah, definitely, because we know that studying medicines require really good grades, and also it's ha- requiring you to have a good mentality as well. So I guess um, because I already have the mentalities of facing stress and things, so what I need is actually the grades. So it, I kind of treat it as my own target, and I want to study medicine, and I want to help the people. So with this target, I'm pushing myself furthermore towards my own wishes. And uh, what advice do you have for for students who didn't do so well in their DSE exams? Um, I think it may be a really hard time for you all if you didn't do well. And I also know some people who didn't do well, and I hope they um, would... They can ask for help, of course, and uh, they can ask for actual help from the seniors, from alumni, or from the others, uh, like NGOs in the society. And we can all offer help to you, no matter mentally or actually uh, regarding to career planning or regarding to how you can um, get uh, your degrees or the suitable major for yourself. So there are a lot of opportunities and a lot of potential outside. So it's all right to, um, it's all right to, like, like not doing well in this exam because it's not everything in your life and there are still a lot of chances for you to gain a better life. And what about students who are going to take DSC next year, the year after, or, or in the future? You know, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Is last minute cramming a big no-no? <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I also did a bit of last minute. <laughs> yeah. So I guess it depends on how you can treat stress. Because mm-hmm. I believe that a lot of people are really have, having great potential and doing great in DSE exam. But uh, probably some of them didn't do well eventually it's because they're having a really stressful lifestyle at the end of the preparation period. So that's why they are kind of like pushing themselves too far and they go again, like go over the limit and then they kind of break down during the actual exams and cannot perform all their best. So that's why I believe if you can just spend, uh, except for spending all the time, like instead of spending all the time on revision, try to like hang out with your friends or having calls with your friends or um, like ask for peer support and also try not to like keep everything to yourself and you need to be open up and tell your friends, tell your parents or even tell your teachers or social workers about what you need. All right, I see. Uh, we have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning and uh, good luck with your studies. Uh, that's uh, ICQ, one of uh, four top scorers in this year's DSE University entrance exams. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Philip Wong, and producer, Raphael. Jim Gold and Paul Zimmerman will be here tomorrow to bring you another episode of Backchat. <laughs>